We have come as far as Philippians chapter 2. We started talking through Philippians last time, and we went through a little bit of the history leading up to this letter to the Philippian church. Uh, Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi about 10 years before this was written, and they were miraculously freed through an earthquake that God used. The Philippian jailer who was um, attending to them was saved with the rest of his family. So that is kind of the background, and the, this fledgling church, the Philippian church, that's how it was formed. So Paul has a very deep connection with this church, and we see it all throughout his letter. He's very warm and inviting to them. It's not like his letter to the Corinthian church that was more corrective in nature, but he's very friendly to them, and we'll see more of that as we move along. So I am going to read uh, verses 1 through 11 just to get us a bigger picture of what he's talking about here in this first section, and then we will move back through it in a little bit more detail and hopefully get to verse 17 or so. So Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, and anytime we see therefore, it's therefore a reason, okay? So it's referring back to the last part of the first chapter. So we'll look at that when we come back through. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy being, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowly, lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. So this whole first chunk of chapter 2, we see, is actually talking about the same thing. It's the mind of Christ. And Paul says that that mind of Christ is what unifies us. So if we are all of the same mind, that is the mind of Christ, then we will be unified with each other. So I'm going to back up to chapter 1, uh, verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So this faith that they have 
is real to them. And we can see that. And that, Paul says, is terrifying to their adversaries. Because their adversaries, namely the Romans, uh, they're not able to shake the Philippian church because their faith is real to them. Which is to them a proof of perdition. Caesar worship was going on at this time. So uh, they were different than the Romans in that they did not worship the Caesar, they worshiped the living God. And to the Romans, that was proof of perdition. But to you, so to the believers, it's proof of salvation, and that from God. So then moving into chapter 2, we continue this, this same idea, and it says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and there is. So Paul is kind of setting up this rhetorical question Uh, if there is any consolation in Christ, but he's writing to believers and they know that there is consolation in Christ. Uh, Same with these next couple of things that he lists. If any comfort in love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. So um, basically the whole idea of verses 1 through 11 is Paul urging these believers to humble themselves, to esteem others above themselves. Um, And then he he says that is how Christ held himself on earth. So that is the mind of Christ that he wants present in the Philippian believers. Verse 2, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Um. He calls for these believers to have the same love. Okay, he's, this love is agape. So we've talked about that before. It's a self-sacrificial love. It expects nothing in return. And this is the love of Christ, this agape love. So First um, John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says it very well. It says, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So the love of Christ should be reflected by believers. Uh, We are called to have that same mind. And what John said right there in those two verses is really the same thing that Paul is trying to communicate to the believers in Philippi, except Paul uses many more words to do that. Um, Eleven verses of words. Um, So the idea of keeping the Lord's commands is sewn into the Old Testament. Okay, bear with me for just a second. You'll see how this comes back around. But we see this idea mainly as like a, a command, so, you will keep my commandments, thus says the Lord. So, it's kind of presented in an authoritarian way, and it's not connected to love, this keeping of the commandments, until uh, Matthew twenty-two forty. Okay, Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two things hang all the law and the prophets. Okay, so we see the law, the commandments, being connected to love. Love is at the heart of the law. And that was God's heart in giving the children of Israel the law. So Jesus connects these dots for us. And um, the rest of the, the New Testament writers echo this idea over and over. And especially in a few passages written by John. You know, we just went over First uh, John, and we saw this idea of love, commandments, loving your brethren, um, abiding in Christ. And so I'm just going to list out a few of these verses if you want to check them out. But First John 2, 4, 5, 3, John 14, 15, 15, 10, and 15, 14. So all of these verses echo this idea of the commandments and keeping the commandments is love. So if you love God, you will keep his commandments. And Jesus, we know, came to fulfill the law. He, he did keep all the commandments. That's what sets him apart from us, one of the ways. And that love that was in Jesus... He placed his love for us above his fleshly impulses because he was made in, as a man. While being fully God, he was fully man. And we'll see that actually in just a second. But he placed his love for us, his love for the Father and in doing his will, above that of his fleshly impulses. He didn't want to die on the cross. He didn't want to suffer through that on his own, but he knew that that was the will of the Father, that was what needed to be done, and he placed that love for us above his own flesh. Okay? That is the love of Christ. That is the love that Paul is alluding to here when he says the same love. So the same love together as believers, we're to have the same and that love is to be the same as Christ. So it all kind of comes full circle here as, as Paul is writing to the Philippians. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Okay. Having the same love... The love of Christ does not count his commands as burdensome. Okay, I believe it was First John that we saw that. Um, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself, just as Christ put his love above uh, his flesh. So I would challenge you, and... No hands, please, but I'm going to ask you a question just for personal reflection. Where does your love for others rank among your love for life or your love for comfort or money? 
Okay, and you can fill in that blank with anything. But where does your love for others rank on the, the, the little love ranking scale that we're using? Um, and, you know, I certainly have to ask myself this. And when I was going through this passage this week, uh, this hit me pretty hard because I can't say that I'm where I need to be. Uh, so I'm talking to myself right now, and y'all are kind of listening in. I'm preaching to myself, okay? So, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. This word that Paul uses for selfish ambition is not found in classical Greek. Uh, And that's to say, he kind of made this word up, but he defines it for us, so we're good. So, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but... In lowliness of mind, I'm sorry, that word he made up was for lowliness of mind, not selfish ambition. So for selfish ambition, um, we see the same word used in Philippians 1.16. So we're going to revisit that. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition. Okay, so that's the same word. It's connecting what he's saying here back to what he was saying earlier. Uh the former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Paul says that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So back in chapter 1, uh, around verse 16, when he was talking about um, the two different kinds of ways that Christ is preached. So you have some of envy and strife, and you have some of goodwill. And he contrasts those two ideas, and he says, no matter what, Christ is preached, and I rejoice. But he doesn't want the Philippian church to think that it's necessarily okay to preach Christ through selfish ambition. So I see this chapter 2, verse 3, as a little clarification there, because he would have been, you know, writing this out by hand, and he wouldn't have had a little backspace button to go back and edit what he wrote earlier. So he's kind of throwing this in there to clarify that idea for them. So he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. So when he says nothing, that covers preaching. So don't let your preaching be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And then he tells, you, he tells us what we should do. He says, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So he kind of created this lowliness of mind term and then defines it right after. Each esteem others better than himself. So it's kind of the idea of putting yourself down one notch and elevating others above yourself. So it's just not thinking that you're all that in a bag of chips. you know. So... Lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I'm glad that he didn't completely dismiss our own interests. And he didn't. He, he says, look out not only for your own interests. So it's okay to look out for your own interests, but after others so also for the interests of others. So we want to put ourselves below others. And that is the mind of Christ. 
Now, verse 5, uh, he talks specifically about how Christ humbled himself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So this was the mindset of Jesus. Uh, We know that he was God from the beginning, and we see that all throughout Scripture, but explicitly in 1 John 1.1. John 1.1, not 1 John. Um, Jesus, when he was claiming to be God, he didn't consider that anything to be grasped, anything to... uh, My version, the NKJV, says... um, He did not consider it robbery. So it was nothing out of the ordinary from him. It's just who he was. He was God. Um, And if you look at his trial and everything right before he was crucified, it was actually this claim that got him crucified, that he was God. They had nothing else against him. They couldn't find anything else at fault with him. It was only that he claimed to be God, which would be a grave offense if it weren't true, and that's the problem. So the the problem for them is salvation for us. The proof of perdition for them was salvation to the Philippians. Think about um, how far Jesus had to stoop down to take on human flesh and ministered to us in the way that he did. And look, it, it says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As if it was not enough for him to come commune with us as a human, just simply to, to not be with God, to be on earth in flesh, As if that was not enough, he became obedient to death, and even death on the cross. And we have so romanticized the cross. But it would not be legal in Rome to crucify a Roman citizen. That's how bad it was. It was a tool for humiliation and for torture. Okay, it was capital punishment. And we have taken that and we have so skewed it just in our culture. And here, these people in the first century church, they would have understood a little bit better than we do what it means to become obedient even to death on the cross. They would have understood the humiliation, the torture, that it would have had. So uh, I do want to keep that in mind as we think about this. It's not what we've come to to kind of think it is, but rather it was excruciating. Um, and really, we don't have a modern equivalent to that that I'm aware of, um, in America at least. So he, he humbled himself to the point of taking on a a sinful flesh, and finite. He went from the infinite 
to our finite realm and tried to communicate with us. So imagine, we've got anthills all over the place, right? Imagine that you knew that your lawn was about to be mowed and that anthill was in trouble and you needed to communicate a message to those ants that they were about to get demolished. Could you kneel over and just kind of talk to them? Hey guys, like, watch out. Like, you might want to evacuate real quick. You couldn't do that. They wouldn't understand. The best way to do that, if it were possible, would be to become an ant, to go into their little anthill and warn them of the impending doom. Okay, so imagine what you would have to give up to become an ant. Your intellect, your much superior physical abilities, um, and even your, your morals. I, I'm not aware that ants have any morals, so I, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Uh, so you would have to take off these things in order to position yourself to minister to them. But that is nothing to be compared with the infinite God of the universe, the creator, stepping down to take on the form of his creation. It's so far removed from anything that we can understand. And we will be in heaven one day, and we will be learning of this for eternity. And we will never fully comprehend it. We're not able to. He is so far above us, yet he loved us so much that he came to us. And that's beautiful. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, so in light of what he just said, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name. It's important to note that Jesus humbled himself and then God exalted him. Jesus did not exalt himself. We know that he came from uh, a dad who was a carpenter. So we assume that Jesus would have grown up learning how to be a carpenter. It was common to follow the trade of your father in those days. So he probably was a carpenter by trade. He was nothing special. No reputation. You know, we love to, we love to have our rep- reputation precede us. We love when people know who we are. But Jesus, it said, was made of no reputation. The form of God was not something to be grasped, to be held onto for him, but he let that go. And all because of this love that we are being called to uh, commune in. We're, we're called to all show this same kind of love. And it's a reach. It's not, not easy. Um, although I would say it's simple. But simple is not easy. Okay? In Psalm 75, 6 and 7... It says, for exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. 
Some translations may say that promotion comes from the Lord. Um, mine says exaltation. It's the same thing. You can pick what you like. But promotion, I think, kind of helps me understand more what he's talking about. Uh, so promotion comes from the Lord. And we see it very plainly here in Philippians. Jesus humbled himself and God exalted him. And that's how it works. If you want to know how do I climb the ladder, Joe Foch said to climb the ladder, to take one step up, you have to get down on two knees. Okay, so you're petitioning the Lord. He's the one who is going to bump you up. He's the one who's going to take you down. We see that with Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. Uh, He raised him up. What was his name? I don't remember, but there's another example that was really good. Um, So, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. So, of those in heaven, you know, that's no problem. That's cherubim, seraphim, the redeemed, everyone in heaven rejoicing and bowing down at the name of Jesus. Of those on earth, every, every man on earth, okay, everything, every kingdom, every religion, the Muslims, the Hindus, the Mormons, everyone, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Of those in heaven, and of those on the earth, and of those under the earth. So those under the earth, we're just talking about the demons, the fallen angels, the creatures of that nature. Nobody's exempt, okay? It will be made known that Jesus is the king. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the end of this whole thing, to the glory of God the Father. That's what it's about, and that is what it will come to. Verse 12. Therefore, again, therefore is therefore a reason. So in light of the humbled Christ, in light of us uh, exhibiting that same love as Christ, my beloved, As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This is twisted a little bit sometimes. Uh, He does say work out your own salvation, not work for your own salvation. Okay, and I want to draw a lot of attention to that because that's different, okay? We're not working for our salvation. It's a free gift. You take it, and it's yours, okay? You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you're sealed. That's a free gift. But sometimes we don't, we're not too confident in that salvation, and that's normal. You know, sometimes we doubt whether we're saved or not, uh, if you do, I would point you back to First John. Read through First John, and that gives great assurance of faith, or it prods you in the right direction. Okay, we see love your brethren. 
if you love your brethren, that is a uh, indication that the Holy Spirit is in you. Okay, and so, so in light of all that he has already talked about, uh, he says, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. This church uh, was pretty great as far as Paul was concerned. He, he loved this church, and even when he was with them. But now he says, even in my absence, I've heard great things about you. And we'll see uh, some of the back and forth that goes on between messengers and uh, Epaphroditus uh, carrying messages back and forth. Probably get to that next time. Uh, but even in his absence, he hears of the great things that the Philippian church has been doing. And so in light of this, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He also does not say, work out your spouse's salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your parents' salvation with fear and trembling. We are all accountable for our own self. We are not held accountable for someone else. Um, So I would implore you to work out your own salvation. Okay? And uh, verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Simply put, God plants these good desires in us. They don't come from us. They come from the Father. So do all things without complaining and disputing. That's a tough one. It's practical, but it's difficult. Do all things without complaining. I love complaining. Um, I can tell that y'all do too. But it's, it's natural, okay? You get a less than ideal assignment at work. For me, it would be filling out travel paperwork for our clubs. So I get all of this put on me. My first instinct is to grumble and to complain because that's very tedious work. Nobody wants to do it, so it gets put on the graduate assistant. Um, But that is not at all what we should be doing. In fact, uh, we should, whatever we do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that's tough. But that's what we're called to do. So without complaining and disputing... Later on in his letter, in chapter 4, Paul will address a couple of women in this Philippian church that have come to dissension. They're disputing. Uh, And he writes about it other places, uh, this unity. We just talked about unity through the same love, and that's how you accomplish it. But he doesn't want this church to be dividing. He wants it to be unified. Okay, and all throughout Scripture, it's the same, same thing. They don't want the church to split. The church, capital C Church, is the true ecumenical group of believers. It's the children of God. Uh, regardless of denomination, you know, anything, if you are a born-again believer, you are part of the capital C Church. Okay, so we are to get along with each other. We're all on the same team. 
right? Because if you are a true believer, we have Jesus as our Savior, and He is the Lord of all of our lives. So we are all pushing to glorify Him, okay? So there's no need for dissension between us. That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So we see this blameless here, and that blameless is not of our own righteousness. It's of the righteousness imputed to us through Christ. We see harmless. Harmless is, is speaking of the mind, uh, and it, the definition is including without mixture of evil. So it's talking about something that is very pure. Okay, it, There's no room in the definition of harmless, which we are trying to become. We're not there yet, but we're trying to get there. Um, there's no room in this definition for evil. It excludes evil. It's harmless. It's innocent of the mind. That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God. We saw that phrase, children of God, in 1 John a lot. It's technon. Uh, children is technon. It means born ones. We were just talking about the ecumenical church. Those are all the born ones, technon, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I really liked this. Charles Spurgeon said, it's beautiful when you see a ship on the sea. You run into trouble when you see the sea in the ship. And that is obviously very true. But it can be wrapped back around and applied to this verse. You are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You are the boat floating on the sea of this crookedness. And we see it. It's not hidden. Um, it, has, it has come out. So as believers, we're not to hide ourselves from that. We are to be in the world, not of it. We have to let our light shine before men so that they will see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. That's our job. So we don't want that ship to start leaking. We don't want to let the world flood into us. Okay, We are to preserve ourselves. But you can't get your job done if you hide in your closet and pray all day. Okay, you got to be out, you got to be doing things, uh, making that light that we have known. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. So the idea of light again. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world. And he says that. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That was from John 8, 12. Jesus is the light of the world, and the Christians, we are light bearers, okay? And I like to think of this kind of like we see the moon, okay? We know that the moon is very reflective, but it does not produce its own light. It just reflects the light of the sun back to us, so we see it, okay? So we are to be like a reflective object, like the moon, 
and we are reflecting the light, ironically, of the sun, S-O-N, back to the world. So I, I like to look at it that way because we're not producing our own light. Verse 16. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So holding fast to the word of life. And Paul returns to an analogy of a race. Okay, He writes about it in other places. He likens this Christian life to a foot race. Uh, and it would have been very well understood by the people of this day. Uh, you've got the sporting events, uh, the races that would be held there, um, running for a crown. And he's pressing towards this goal. He has this goal in mind. And this goal specifically right here, he's referring to a goal that the believers in Philippi would hold fast the word of life. So that's what he hopes to accomplish. In starting that church, in uh, keeping that church alive, to ministering to that church, he wants them to hold fast the word of God. Okay? So that is his goal, and he is racing towards that. He's pouring himself out. We see, yes, in verse 17, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Sometimes it feels like that. It feels like you're being poured out. Uh, You're ministering to someone in your life that you know needs to hear what you have to say, uh, namely the gospel. And I, I can't say everyone, but I would imagine that the vast majority of you have someone that you're thinking of right now who you've been ministering to, and it feels like you're pouring yourself out to them, and it's draining, and you, you don't always feel refreshed but you're always giving because you know they need it. And I think that the pouring out of a drink offering is such a great picture of that. You're giving more of yourself than they give to you. And it empties you. Now, we ask for fillings of the Spirit. Okay? And... That's very important. If you're pouring yourself out in Christ, then you need to be refilled. You need to have that time alone to recharge with Christ. You need to have that time in fellowship with Him in your Bible that fills you back up so that you can continue to pour yourself out because they need you. That person that you're thinking of needs to hear about the gospel. So I would encourage you to continue doing what you're doing. Uh, be faithful in ministering to that person and don't stop pouring yourself out just because it's tiring. And I know it is. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. We are going to stop there today. Um, We will 
finish up chapter 2 next time if the Lord tarries. Uh, We'll see Timothy being praised by Paul, and we'll see Epaphroditus, who was a messenger and a founding member of the Philippian church. He will also be commended by Paul on, on his good job. So uh, let's do close in prayer, and then we will be dismissed.